If you have your journals, get them out, get them ready. So this is going to be kind of our sword, our tool uh, for the next year and change. Um, But as you're um, getting your, your journals ready, and if you didn't grab one before, feel free to grab one after. Uh, but it was probably the mid-90s, and I was in fourth grade. And a little bit of background on just my story. Uh, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, Aurora, Illinois, and my family didn't live in the greatest of neighborhoods, And so it was not uncommon for me to hear as a kid gunshots or to hear, hey, you've got to come inside. It's not safe to be outside right now. Um, I have vivid memories of my mom telling me to duck below the windows in our cars as we would drive through parts of town. I have a, a memory of my mom not feeling like it was safe to stop at a red light. And so she ran the red light to to get us home. And I have, I have a dad who loves us and protects us and provides for us, but the way that he provided took him out of town a lot. And so it was often just me, my younger brother, and my mom in this, um, in this city week to week. And so, and I went to um, a small private Christian school, pretty much all up, up until middle school. And in fourth grade, I remember we were on our way home one night from the grocery store, and it was dark outside. And my mom kind of had what we call our spidey senses. I would say the gift of discernment. She had her spidey senses kind of tingling. that She felt like there was a car behind us that was following us. And so she took this like really obscure way, way out of the way home because my dad was out of town, and she didn't want to get home and have been followed, and now we're at home with this person who who knows what they're up to, and we're left with, it's just her and two little kids. I was maybe 10 years old. And the taillights eventually faded away. We get inside, we lock the doors, we kind of calm down, and I remember laying in bed feeling an incredible amount of fear, feeling a ton of anxiety. And the next day, I went to school, and I asked my teacher, and I don't remember why, I asked my teacher this, but it had just been consuming my mind, and God just kind of created me to be curious and ask a lot of questions. I love to ask questions. And I remember I, had, I, I raised my hand, and I couldn't tell you why I asked her, but I asked my teacher, and I could tell you where I was sitting in the classroom. I could tell you what it smelled like. I could tell you she was wearing like a black, blue, red, and yellow like long sweater dress because it was the 90s and that was cool. Um, and I asked her a question. I said, Mrs. Miller, is it possible that someone can follow you in a car from in front of you? Really, and that's, that's a silly question. That's, that's a weird, like, why? And, but I was full of fear and anxiety over what had happened the night before. And my teacher, who's supposed to care for me, protect me, um, supposed to be a good, um, just accountability support system and um, should have my back in that moment. This is a school, there's maybe 19 kids in the class. She openly mocked me and called me stupid 
And I have this vivid memory of all the kids in my class turning and looking at me and laughing at me. And that was a wounding moment in that I can account for it with that much detail way more years than I wish it was later. Here's, here's why I share that story. I wonder if some of us, from that moment on for me, something kind of died when it came to publicly asking things that were going on in my mind and heart. I stopped asking questions. I stopped being quite so curious externally. Internally, it's still all churning and burning, but I was scared to ask because I didn't want to be put to shame. I didn't want to have to relive that experience. As we dive into Romans next week, Greg's going to give us kind of a big picture overview of the book of Romans. But what I want to do this morning is throughout our study in the book of Romans, one of the things that I love about this book the most is that Paul is not ashamed to ask great questions and to ask questions that maybe we have or that he assumes the audience has kind of burning under the surface because he doesn't want anybody to feel shame or feel silly for not understanding how deep the impact of the gospel really is. And so this morning, we're going to take just a few minutes and we're going to ask, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul asks and rather assumes that the audience in Rome, the church that he has never met, he didn't start this church, he's, he doesn't have a whole lot of relational equity with them, so he's writing this letter to establish that and to train them and to spur them on. He's assuming you guys are going to have questions about how Jesus impacts everything, and he doesn't see that there are stupid or bad questions. And that all questions are worth asking, and that Paul's going to take the time to actually answer some of these questions that I actually think some of us may be struggling with, or maybe we've been scared to raise our hand and voice those same concerns, those same questions. And so um, we're going to dive in. And the first kind of section, and if you've got a note sheet on the way in, I know we're going to lean heavily on our journals, and you'll see throughout, there'll be page numbers on the bottom of the slides to direct you in those journals. But there's kind of three kind of sections in Romans where he, he asks these questions. He just kind of anticipates that the readers of this letter will have. The first section is going to be focused on the issue or surrounding concepts tied to justification. And that's a $10 deep doctrine theological term that might have your head scratching. In the back of these journals, there is a glossary that's going to define a ton of terms for us. And one of the terms that they define is justification. So they define it as the act of God's grace. So it's not us and it's not deserved. It's God choosing to act on our behalf, and look at what he does in declaring sinners, that's you and that's me, fully acquitted. Hear me for just a second. Justification, and as we journey through Romans, one of the things Paul is going to come back to over and over and over again is that in Christ, you are free. 
You have been acquitted. You're not guilty anymore. Christ took that. You are set free. You are acquitted. And that would be more than enough. But that justification doesn't stop there. It's and counted them as righteous. It's not just that you're not guilty. He says you're righteous. In Christ, you are pleasing. In Christ, you are set apart. You're fully acquitted. You're counted as righteous before him, but it's important we don't misunderstand. It's on the basis of the finished work of Christ. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood, and the empty tomb that we receive then through faith alone. And all of us operate at times by faith. It's, we may be at war to have faith in Christ, and that may be a daily struggle and battle, but you get in your car and you drive home and you hit the red light of the railroad tracks and you tap your brakes and you have faith that the brakes are going to break so you can break so you don't end up broke. We have faith. You just sat down in the chairs. I watched people come in. Nobody was like, let me make sure this chair is sturdy and doesn't collapse. You just trust that the chair is going to chair so you can sit. It's trusting in Christ, having faith in him and his work, and that and believing we are fully acquitted. We are counted as righteous. And so the first group of questions we're going to tackle, tied to justification, we'll see in Romans 3. So if you want to flip to page 36, kind of the first question I see Paul ask and anticipate in the church in Rome is do God's people really matter? So it's important to know, and again, Greg's going to do a deep dive overview, and then we'll go back and start in chapter 1, verse 1, in a couple of weeks. But we're just going to be cozy in Romans for a long time. We're not in a hurry. But one of the first things he asks is, do God's people matter? Because the church in Rome launched after Pentecost, after 3,000 people came to faith in one day, a handful of them most likely journeyed back to Rome, started this church, and as the church in Rome grows in its maturity, but also just in number, it's made up of Jews, God's chosen people, who celebrate the Torah, who know the Old Testament, who study God's word, who practice the ceremonial law, who've been circumcised, who go to temple, who have all of this history in being God's chosen people. But then there's also Gentiles, which is everybody else. All the other not God's people. And they come together on Sundays to worship and make much of the fact that they've been fully acquitted, to make much of the fact that they've been accounted as righteous, to make much of the finished work of Jesus, and it creates tension because they've got different backgrounds, different histories. And as the church grows and as Paul writes, he begins to anticipate this question as he is drilling down on the importance of faith in Christ, of if it's all about Jesus does the fact that he chose a certain group of people really matter? And so he asks this question in Romans 3, verse 1 and 2. What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? He says, much 
in every way. If you highlight or underline, I would highlight, I would underline that in your journal. He says, much in every way. Of course it matters that God has chosen his people. And he, he gives us the why. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They prepare the way. God gives them his word. God gives them prophets. God gives them signs. God gives them miracles. All to pave the way so that the plans and purposes of Jesus can be revealed in his life, in his death and resurrection. We need God's people to reveal God's plan. And so for the, for the Roman church to ask, man, if we're focusing in on we're fully acquitted, if we're focusing in on we're counted as righteous, if we're focused in on Jesus, can we just forget about God's chosen people? Paul says no. They matter a great deal that we're only here because of God's faithfulness through his people. But there was, there's another question that kind of bubbles to the surface that Paul is going to ask and then answer. He says, well, does a lack of faith in God's people, does a lack of faithfulness in God's people reflect that maybe God himself has failed? If you look at just the next verse, verse uh, three and four. So we need God's people. They push God's plan. They move God's plan forward. He says, but what if some were unfaithful? What if God's people have let us down? Does their faithfulness nullify? That word is abolish the faithfulness of God. If the Jews haven't been faithful, does that mean that God has failed? I think that's the question Paul is anticipating here. And look at his response to this question, he just kind of assumes God's people are going to ask as they soak with the concept of being justified. By no means. This, this phrase in the, the Greek is kind of like an exhale of, let it never be so. Just this heart cry of absolutely not. He says, let God be true, though everyone we're a liar. And then he gives some, he shows his work from Psalm 51 that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He anticipates this tension that is growing in the Roman church between Jews and Gentiles that some of them are going to struggle with. We don't need to respect God's chosen people, but also some are really going to wrestle with God's people have let me down, therefore I can't trust God. And he says, God is true even if everyone else is a liar. I wonder if anybody in here has been hurt by God's people, has been wounded by those who should be, like my teacher, there to protect and fight for you. And how many of us walk with a limp in our relationship with the Lord because we're allowing the faithlessness of others to impact our walk with God. Maybe you've questioned, man, God, with how people have treated me, can I trust that you are good? And for us in Romans, Paul's gonna say, God is true even if everyone else lets you down. If everyone else is a liar, let God be true. He continues on to ask the question, that he just anticipates as he continues to unpack this. So if God is not impacted by the faithlessness of people, 
if he is good, even if, every, if he is true, even if everyone is a liar, then maybe it, it would be a fair assumption to say, well, God's wrong to punish rebellious, wicked, sinful people. That's the question he would anticipate some of us asking, some of the audience in the church at Rome. He says, if our unrighteousness, verse 5, serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And I love this parenthetical statement he makes. I speak in a human way. He goes, this only makes sense to our broken, fallen minds. This is such a worldly way of thinking. This question that he anticipates the audience will have is a reflection of how far we've fallen from God's standard. That we would think that God, because you can find ways to reveal your plans and your, pur your purposes in my sin, that you can find glory and a pathway through that, you are wrong to punish sinners. Or maybe to think of it another way that I've wrestled with. How could a good God send people to hell? That question shows how broken our thought process is. The fact that we don't marvel that we have been acquitted and counted as righteous, that we think we earn it, that we think we deserve it, that we think that, that for God to send anyone to hell is unkind, when the truth of the matter is if one is saved, that's unthinkable. Or let me put it another way. God could stay good, righteous, true, and holy and send all of us to hell because that's what we deserve. We deserve nothing. Romans will show us that we are eager to step into our sin. We are eager to live in our sin and stay stuck there. And God enters in through Christ and rescues us. And for some, he gives them over to the desires of their heart. And it's God, he says in verse six, being the judge of the world. That God is completely righteous and just to judge what is right and wrong. He is holy and the creator. But he anticipates. Some of us are going to struggle with this. This is going to be hard for us. And we should wrestle and ask these questions. But we need to come back to, God, you are the judge of the world. And we should marvel that any of us, if you are in here this morning and you are in Christ, you would say, I've been acquitted of my sin. He has counted me as righteous because of the fully finished work of Christ on the cross. That is unbelievable. You don't deserve that. That is a miracle that should draw you to your knees and deep in worship daily. But we're gonna wrestle. We're gonna question one of the next kind of questions I see that Paul is going to ask, as again, he keeps coming back to in Romans 3, this issue of faith, and it's faith in Christ alone, that we are acquitted through his broken body, his shed blood. He sees and anticipates that for some, they're going to get to a point where they just go, well, maybe we just don't need the Old Testament part of the Bible. That, man, if it's all about Jesus and it's all about faith, let's just chuck 
all this law and Old Testament stuff and let's just be New Testament Christians and forget the law. The end of chapter three, that's where he goes. He says, since God is one, since he rules and reigns over everything, he's both God of the Jews and God of the Gentiles is what it's, he's unpacking in verse 29. He says, who is going to justify those by, the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, by faith. That was the symbol by which you knew. Were you Jew or were you Gentile was, um, was circumcision. Verse 31, here's the question he anticipates. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Because we have faith, can we just get rid of the law? Do we not need to walk in obedience anymore? Can we just be done with all the rules? His response, yet again, by no means. Let it never be so. He says, on the contrary, he says, we uphold the law as those who have been justified, as those who have been rescued and acquitted of our sin. We now follow the justifier, the savior, and we want to make much of the things he says are for our good, for our protection, and for our blessing and his glory. So we uphold the law. We don't do away with the Old Testament. We don't run and and say we don't have to walk in obedience anymore because we're just people of faith. Bonhoeffer actually calls that cheap grace, and it eventually means nothing. But we uphold the law. We make much of obedience. And so what we see in this first section are these questions that Paul is willing to put on the table. He's not ashamed for people to wrestle with. Man, is it important for, do God's people really matter? He says, absolutely. That's how his plans and purposes go forward. Does a failure on behalf of God's people roll up to God? He says, by no means, God is true and we should trust his word. Is God wrong to punish sinners? He says, by no means. God is the judge and we deserved wrath or condemnation would be just. And should we be done with the rules? He says, absolutely not. Let it not be so. God is one and we are responsible. We are called. We are saved to then uphold and make much of his word and his rules. We are to follow after him in faithful obedience. These are worthwhile questions. And Paul takes the time to give us answers. And so I'm gonna ask you, Maybe some questions worth reflecting on this morning. Do you trust God completely? Do you believe God is true and you trust his word? Do you see God, and I would say yourself also, rightly, in light of who he is, as the judge that we deserved wrath You see God as the one who entered into your story and by his death and resurrection, you are acquitted and counted as righteous, but it's only him and not you. Then are you following God faithfully? Are you looking for opportunities to be obedient? An outflow of a walk with Jesus should be obedience. It shouldn't be white knuckle, man, I've got to have a daily devotional. It should be, man, I'm so overwhelmed. Jesus, you set me free. I get 
a devotional this morning. I get a daily worship habit and practice. I get to come and gather with God's people and make much of him. It is an opportunity, not an obligation. But are we following him faithfully? And I can feel right now a little bit of tension in the room. There's still two sections to go if you have your note sheets and you're like, holy cow, we're going to be here forever. Don't worry. We're done. But we're not done. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. On your note sheet that you hopefully got on the way in, there's two other sections that Paul is going to ask questions that he just anticipates the readers of this letter will wrestle with. Maybe you've got a great daily worship habit and pattern. I would ask you to add this to that. Don't interrupt that, but add this to it somewhere else in your week. But there are, I can't remember now, but there's two sections and I think like another 10 questions that Paul is going to ask as we journey through Romans that he just anticipates we're gonna wrestle with. I'm gonna ask you this week, let's wrestle with those questions. Let's wrestle with the, the, the concepts of what does it mean to be sanctified. And all these definitions are in the back of your journal. You can find out what they mean, write them down for your own personal knowledge and edification, and then wrestle with the questions and what those verses have to say about who God is, who we are, and how we can trust in him. But let's be a people as we journey through Romans who aren't afraid to ask questions. Let's let this be a safe place where the things that are stirring in our souls, let's not be my fourth grade teacher. Let's let this be a place where the things that are going on inside of us as we walk through Romans, we let God bring to the surface, we share in community, in regroups or accountability groups or somewhere. And then let's watch as, as we follow Jesus together and he transforms us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're a big God who's not afraid of our questions. That you can handle anything and everything that goes on in our minds and hearts. And you are eager for us to lay that at your feet. That you are a good, safe, loving father. But Lord, for some of us in this room, I pray that we would see you also as the one who poured out wrath on your son to justify us, to acquit us of our sin, to count us as righteous. That it's nothing we did, but Jesus, it's everything you did in our place for our sin, wickedness, and our rebellion. And so Jesus, if there's someone in this room who does not see you in that way, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would give them eyes to see their sin and to feel small in light of who you are. God, would we be a people who follow you faithfully, who trust you completely and see you rightly? And would you do that as we walk and study through this amazing work of your spirit. God, I thank you for preserving this letter. I thank you for how you're going to grow us, shape us, challenge us, and change us as we journey through 
this book. God, help us not be afraid to ask questions. Help us be vulnerable and real with each other. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to